shepherd. I want to read you a story about a person that was a bad shepherd. The story is told of the bad shepherd who, fearing for safety of his flock, built a wall around his sheep while they were grazing in the mountain. The wall saved the bad shepherd from one trouble that plagued other shepherds, a sheep wandering off and being lost. The bad shepherd's sheep did not wander, but the boundary between the flock and the rest of the mountain was clearly marked by a wall that kept them from straying. It kept wolves from entering the flock, and it kept the sheep safe. But unfortunately, by the end of the day, the sheep had eaten all of the grass inside the wall, and they began to starve. During another summer, the bad shepherd found that one of his sheep had fallen from a small mountain cliff, breaking her leg. He knew that he could nurse the sheep back to health with a couple months of careful attention. On the other hand, such an approach might lead all the sheep to believe there were no real consequences to jumping off cliffs. She might jump again, and she might even convince the other sheep to go with her. These worries were whirling around his mind, and the bad shepherd carefully gathered the wounded sheep in his arms and carried her off to another mountain far away from the other sheep, and there he left her and hoped that she would one day heal herself and realize the true cost of jumping off of cliffs. One morning, the bad shepherd counted his sheep and found that there was one missing. If the sheep wanted to be with the flock, surely he would never have gotten lost in the first place. So the shepherd made up his mind. He would not wander after the lost sheep. The sheep could find their own way back. And morning after morning, he made the same decision. Until finally, his job became quite manageable as he had no remaining sheep. And in his mind, it was easy to be a shepherd. Well, you know, it's not easy to be a shepherd. It's not easy to care for sheep. And many pastors embrace the same philosophy. They neglect feeding the sheep. Sometimes they don't nurse sheep back to health in their own congregation. Sometimes they say they're better off on their own. I'm just going to leave them to their own devices. It's not easy to be a shepherd and it shouldn't be easy to be a shepherd. It is a high calling from God. It's modeled after the shepherding ministry of Jesus Christ, who is called the good shepherd. And yet we find time and time again that people go to bad shepherds. People go to churches where they have false teaching and preaching. They find pastors who tell them not to change. They find preaching and teaching that tickles their ears and tells them everything they want to hear. They find ministries based on externals with no substance. And the church needs good shepherding. The church needs good pastoral care. And this means pastors and elders who model biblical shepherding from God's word. I said last week that the beginning of Acts 20 gives us some examples of Paul's shepherding ministry. How did Paul care for people? How did he minister to people? What did he teach them? We saw this through his encouragement. We saw this through his submission to the will of God, through his discipleship, through his instruction in their lives. Well, now what we see in this last section of Acts 20, Paul's message to the Ephesian elders, he gives them some instructions on what good biblical shepherding looks like. This is the last time in Acts he will meet with the Ephesian elders. We know this church from our previous study in Acts had been the church he'd been in for three years. He knew these men well. He had poured into their life. Many of them, in fact, he probably led to the Lord. 
So as Paul gives this message to them, as he gives these instructions to them, I believe he wants us as a church to embrace biblical shepherding. What he's going to show us is that the reason we need biblical shepherding is because there are fierce wolves. There are men who seek to attack the church with false teaching. So how do we combat that? We combat that with good biblical shepherding. So that's what I want us to see today is that we should embrace biblical shepherding as a church. I want us to see two aspects of this that Paul gives the Ephesian elders. The first is the testimony of a good shepherd. Now we've seen Paul's shepherding in action in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 20. But the first 10 verses of our sermon today, he's going to give his own testimony. He's going to talk about himself. And he's not going to do this to puff himself up. He's not going to do this to be proud. But he's going to show how in his life he was a faithful and good shepherd. And then how they should model the same attitude. So what are the marks of a good shepherd? What is Paul's testimony? Let's look first of all at his service. His service. Look with me at verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Remember last week, Paul kind of bounced around all of Asia Minor and Macedonia trying to get to Jerusalem. That's his goal at this point. He's trying to get to Jerusalem to give this offering to the church in Jerusalem. And eventually he wants to get to Rome. But he wants to see these Ephesian elders one more time, but he can't go to Ephesus because he knows if he goes to Ephesus, it's going to be very difficult to leave. He'll be there for many weeks, if not months. So while he's in Miletus, he calls the Ephesian elders to come to that town so that he can talk to them. This would have been a couple days journey. They come to Miletus and he begins saying, you know how I lived among you the whole time. So from the first point where Paul stepped foot in Ephesus until now, which was about three, three and a half years, they knew Paul's testimony, how he had been consistent Paul had been there for a long time, probably the longest time of any of the churches he had done ministry in. And these men knew Paul well. This word for service that he uses in verse 19, he says, serving the Lord with humility, isn't the word diakonos, which is where we get the Greek word for deacon, deacon ministry, serving ministry. But it's actually the word doulos, which means slave. Paul had a serving ministry to God that wasn't just as a servant, but it was as a slave of Christ. If you read Paul's letters, you'll see him do this over and over again. He'll say, Paul, slave of Christ. Again, that word doulos. Why does he use that word? And again, slavery has a negative connotation today. Wasn't quite as negative then, but it involves a total surrender to someone total service towards someone without thinking of your own life. What was Paul's service towards God? It was wholehearted and devoted. It was this slave ministry to the Lord. We see that his service to the Ephesians is marked by a couple different words. The first word that he uses is 
with all humility. With all humility. What does it mean to be humble? Sometimes we have a negative aspect of humility that means you just put yourself down all the time. You think bad of yourself. It sometimes turns into self-pity when they're trying to be humble. That's not what I think humility is. I love what C.S. Lewis says humility is. He says humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Paul's service towards these people was not self-focused, but it was focused on the people that he's serving. It was focused on serving the Lord and thereby serving these people. It was done in total service to others and to God, very rarely thinking of himself. And we'll see that later from Paul. We see two other words that he uses and they go together. We see it's with tears and with trials, with tears and with trials. What What is he talking about in reference to these tears? It's probably the sufferings that he faced. Tears, though, show emotion, right? You see someone cry. They're really upset. They're really emotionally attached to someone or something. And so this shows the emotional connection that Paul had to these people. He'd worked with them for three years. He had been their shepherd. He had poured into their life. And he said sometimes that was hard. Sometimes that led to tears and to emotion. What trials did Paul face? We've seen two of them as we've studied in Acts in Ephesus. One of them was some false teachers that were Jewish that were trying to cast demons out of people. The other was when the whole city was set into an uproar by Paul's teaching so that they shouted with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You remember that every time someone tried to stop them, they would shout it louder and louder to where it went on for two hours. But Paul faced many other trials in his ministry. We've seen this throughout the book of Acts. He faced persecution in several cities, so many that I almost can't name them all. As you go through every city that Paul visits, it usually ends with him either being imprisoned, him being persecuted, or ran out of town because of a threat due to his life. Paul's service was full of humility and trials and tears that come from the Lord. He says at the end of this verse, through the plots of the Jews, you almost see it alternate as Paul goes to these cities. You've either got the Jews that are trying to kill him or the Gentiles that are trying to kill him. Either way, Paul knows that affliction is part of his service to the Lord. But that doesn't detour Paul. That doesn't keep him off course. And why is that? Because he's serving the Lord. That slave servanthood that Paul had. That total commitment to Christ. So we see this service aspect of his testimony. Total commitment to God in humility with tears. Secondly, notice with me his teaching. His teaching. How did Paul teach the Ephesians while he was there? Look with me at verse 20. How I did not shrink... From declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, as he begins starting to talk about his teaching ministry, he uses a verb. He says, I did not shrink from declaring. What does it mean to shrink? I think of it as you're kind of getting lower, you're trying to protect yourself. My dog, Mac, is afraid of our other dog now, Pepper. This was Alicia's dog. 
And he's about three to four times the size of Pepper. But because of her bark, Mac is very timid around her. And sometimes he'll try to stand up to her, but he'll shrink back and just kind of wave one of his paws at her because he's afraid she's just going to lounge at him and attack him. So he's shrinking down. He's trying to protect himself. And what Paul's doing is he's not shrinking. He's not trying to protect himself. He's not worried what's going to happen. But he has this bold declaration ministry in his teaching. If you ever had to tell someone something you don't really want to tell them, you're afraid of how they're going to respond. You're afraid they're going to lash out at you. Paul knew the things that he was going to tell them were not going to be easy, but they needed to hear it anyways. And so he did not shrink. Now be careful with this idea. Be careful with this idea of bold proclamation because people can fall into two different pitfalls of this. Some people are timid and they don't want to speak out. They're always holding things back. Maybe they don't want to speak truth. They just want to show grace all the time and they don't tell people what they need to hear. The other side of this are people that are being bold just to be bold. And they say things that are offensive and they say things that are wrong. And they have this bold speaking style just for the purpose of being bold, but they are not speaking truth. Paul wasn't bold to be bold. He said, I did not shrink from what? Declaring to you anything that was profitable. What does it mean for something to be profitable? It means you're going to use it. It means you're going to apply it. In Sunday school, Schaefer showed us a Answers in Genesis video about mathematics and how it shows the beauty of God. I confess that many times in math class, I asked myself, when is this going to be useful when is this going to be profitable? But as we learned in Sunday school, math shows us the beauty and the glory of God. It is profitable. And in Paul's teaching ministry, he says, I was bold in declaring to you the things that you needed to know, the things that would be profitable to you. And see how he does this. He says, I did this teaching you in public and from house to house. Public obviously means a big, large public setting. We know Paul would go to the synagogues, which was the large Jewish community. He'd go to the marketplace, which had thousands of Greek and Gentile people there. What does this word house to house mean? Some think it means the house church ministry. Many of these cities had house churches that were set up in the city. I think it means he went to people's homes. So it shows his ministry in public and his ministry in private. Some of the best things that pastors have said to me have not just been in their preaching ministry, but it's been one-on-one. -on -one. It's been when I've met with them. It's been when they've encouraged me from God's word. What Paul is showing here in his teaching ministry is that it's done in public and it's done in private, all for the glory of God. So this ministry is done public and private. Lastly, it was gospel-centered. Look at verse 21, testifying to Jews and Greeks. So both people groups are seen here, Jews and Greeks. Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke, specifically the author of Acts, loves to show this, that there is an aspect of salvation that is repentance. You turn from your sin towards Christ. You turn from your old ways towards a new life. But coupled with that on the same side of that coin is faith. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You believe that Christ died for your sins 
you will be saved. And so how does that work? It's this double-sided coin. Those who believe in Christ will in turn repent and become more like him. And Luke, like I said, loves to show us these two aspects of this. And this is what Paul is doing. He was showing repentance towards God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this was his teaching ministry. He served as a slave of God in humility with trials going on. And he taught the word boldly to people in public and private, focused on the gospel. There's so much we could say about Paul's ministry here, but we want to keep going. Let's look thirdly at his life, his service, his teaching, his life. Look at verse 22. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. So as he starts off, he says, this is where I'm going. I have to go to Jerusalem. Why does Paul need to go? Well, he's taking this offering there. He wants to celebrate Pentecost there. We've seen that in Acts. But he says he's constrained by the Spirit. He's bound by the Spirit. He has to go there. This is what makes me believe that Paul's decision to go to Jerusalem was led by God. He believes that the Holy Spirit was leading him to that place. And he says, by the way, I don't know what's going to happen to me there. Starting in next week's sermon, we will see people try to convince Paul not to go. They say, you're going to face trials. You're going to be persecuted. You might even lose your life. And it's not that Paul was ignorant to this. He says, I don't know what's going to happen to me there. But look at this next verse. He says, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. He says, I don't know what's going to happen in Jerusalem, but I just know everywhere else I go, I face trials. I face afflictions. I face persecution. Something is going to happen to me, but he knows that that's where God wants him to be. I had a pastor growing up. He was my pastor in college when I was there. And every time they take a vacation, something bad happens. They've had flat tires. They've had wildfires in California when they've tried to vacation out there. They've had tropical storms when they've gone to the East Coast. It's so much so that the church plans on him being gone longer than he's planning to be because some kind of calamity is going to happen when he takes a vacation. Sometimes I just want to tell him, maybe you should stay home and just relax there, but I don't want to see what would happen to Iowa if he stayed back home during that time. Paul says, the only thing that I know is that everywhere I go has these trials and these afflictions. And if you remember back in Acts 9, God tells Paul and tells Ananias that Paul would suffer greatly as a servant of God. So these things don't detract him from this. He knows that his life is full of affliction, but he is still focused on the gospel. Look at this next verse with me. He says, but I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and my ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. So his life His life's focus is not on himself, not on his comfort, not on his safety or his security. His life is focused on the gospel. People go to Paul and they say, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. What about your life? He says, what about my life? My life is focused on serving God. Sometimes in our lives, we struggle 
to prioritize even the simple things of Christianity, reading God's word, being faithful to share the gospel with others, even in conditions where it's comfortable. We don't have anyone right now in our church's life here that is threatening our lives because of the gospel, that is really making it inconvenient to be a Christian. And yet sometimes we even struggle to do the basic aspects of Christianity. What do you see in Paul's life? He says, I don't know if I'm going to live when I go to Jerusalem, but I have to go because my life is not what is valuable to me. It is my ministry towards God. This was Paul's life. He is focused on the gospel. Look with me lastly at his character. As we look at this first portion of the message at his testimony, we see his character. Look at verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Actually, let's back up to verse 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So there he's saying, I know I'm going to Jerusalem. I probably won't come back. I don't know what's going to happen to me there. This may be the last time that I get to see you. Now, if you read further in the New Testament, if you read First and Second Timothy, you find out that Paul does see them again at one point. But Paul didn't know this and Luke didn't know this. So at this point in Paul's life, this is the last time he thinks that he will see them. So in verse 26, he says, I'm innocent of the blood of all. Now, why does he say that? He's not on trial for murder. He's not being accused of some crime. Look at verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That idea of being innocent means that I didn't withhold anything. That in your life, as I shared the gospel, as I shared God's word with you, I didn't keep anything back, but I told you everything you needed to know in order to be a follower of Christ. So this innocent of their blood. Have you ever done a job for someone and they didn't give you the full directions? They didn't tell you everything that you needed to do in order to make that job complete? Maybe they've left something out. When I worked at the golf course, the boss would give me different jobs to do. And sometimes he would take me out on the golf cart and he'd show me everything I needed to do. I did a lot of push mowing there. He'd say, I want you to push mow this. I want you to weed eat this section. And he'd spend 20 minutes just showing me all the aspects of this job. He says, are you ready to go? And I said, well, I don't have a push mower here. So we had to go back and get the push mower and put it in the golf cart. And then we would go out and I could start on what I needed to do. Paul says, I didn't leave anything out, but I declared to you the whole counsel of God. Now look at that word with me, whole counsel of God in verse 27. It's an interesting word. There's a couple different words that are used for scripture. There's logos and there's graphe. Logos means the word of God. That's the most often one that we see in the Bible. And graphe means scripture or the writings. If you ever see the writings in the New Testament, that's usually the word graphe. But this is a different word that Paul uses. This is the word bulon which doesn't just mean scripture, it means will, the will of God. Now, I still think Paul is talking about the Bible here, but he's talking about the Bible in a specific way. He's talking about the Bible as it relates to knowing God's will. How do we know God's will? How do we know what God wants us to do? 
It's found in God's word. God's word tells us what he wants us to do. It instructs us for how he wants us to live. Now, we're a Bible church. We're Sycamore Bible Church. We love the Bible here. We preach the Bible. We talk about the Bible. And I'm all for that as the pastor. But ask yourself the question, why? Why do I love God's word? Why do we love the Bible? It's not just to love the Bible itself, but it is to love the author of the Bible, God. God wrote the Bible. We believe it's inerrant and inspired by God. It's what he wants us to know and understand as Christians. And why do we enjoy scripture? Why do we know scripture? It is because it is God's message. We read the Bible so we can know the author of the Bible, who is God. So when Paul says in verse 28 or in verse 27, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the will of God. He says, I preached to you God's word so that you could know God's will for your life. Have you ever had someone ask you the question, what is God's will in this situation? Oftentimes that question gets brought up and it's the question, do I buy this car? Do I go to this college? Do I date this person? Do I move into this house? And those are decisions that are just based on good wisdom, right? You can make a wise decision and there's not a verse in Romans or in Acts or in Ephesians that says Lance needs to buy this car. You can make a wise decision on what you need to buy in that circumstance. So how does the Bible show us God's will? Ask yourself the question, what is God's will for my life? First Thessalonians 4 tells us, this is the will of God, your sanctification. What does sanctification mean? It means to be set apart. To be set apart from sin in the world. To be set apart towards God. When we ask the question, what is God's will? It's not as much the daily things in our lives that we have questions about. We can use good wisdom to make those decisions. But it is, am I growing in Christ? Am I becoming more like Christ? Am I acting in a way that Christ would want me to act? That is God's will. Ultimately, it's God's will that we're saved that we grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is the will of God for our lives. So for the Ephesians, Paul says, I taught you what is the whole counsel of God, God's will. And because I taught you those things, I didn't shrink. I didn't hold anything back. But I told you everything you needed to know to grow in Christ. Do you realize this morning that you have everything you need in God's word to become more like Jesus Christ. God's not holding anything back from you. Now, what holds us back? It's our sin. Our sin nature keeps us from that. But even in the Bible, it tells us how we handle our sin. We confess our sin and he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is Paul's character. He says, I'm innocent. I don't have any regrets. I've told you everything you needed to know. And that doesn't mean all of them would be perfect. In fact, he knows that they're not going to be perfect. He knows some of them will even depart from the faith. He'll say this later. But on Paul's end, he had good integrity and faithfulness because he shared with them what was God's will. So as we think about Paul's service, his teaching, his life, his character, 
Ask yourself some questions this morning. First, how do you serve the Lord? Do you serve the Lord with total devotion like Paul as a slave, not holding anything back? Or is it just one of many different things in your life? One of many different hats that you wear. One of many different activities that you take part in. Are you wholeheartedly submitted to God and his service no matter what else comes up in your life, trials, affliction, hardships, it's not easy to follow the Lord. But it is good and it is profitable for our lives. In teaching, do you respect biblical teaching? Do you hunger for God to know his will, to know his word? In your life, no matter what trials God brings into your life, will you still Follow him wholeheartedly like Paul and say, I don't care what happens there. I have to go. I have to serve the Lord. If you thought about this question I have in the past couple weeks, what kind of trial would it take for me to stop trusting the Lord in my life? I hope the answer is that no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what trials, what hardships, what difficulties we face, we would still hold fast to the Lord. I think Tim said this in prayer time today. Oftentimes when trials happen, you can shake your fist towards God and it can harden your heart towards him where you can surrender and allow yourself to be used by God as a powerful testimony to others. And then in your character, you tell others what they need to know from God's word. Do you yourself go to God's word to see what is God's will for your life? There's other questions that we can ask. Like I said, it doesn't say in Ephesians, Lance should buy this car or this house. But the things that God's word tells us are the things that are important. Think about this. How often do I concern myself with, worry about things, focus on things that seem really important right now, but have little importance in God's sight? I'm not saying God doesn't care about them But how often are we so focused on earthly things, the things that are right in front of us right now, that we never think of things that have eternal value? This was not the mindset of Paul. This was Paul's testimony as a good shepherd. I want us to not only see his testimony, I want us to also see the work of a good shepherd. The good shepherd is characterized by his life and testimony, and that's so important. And by the way, so many pastors miss this, the fact that their testimony is important. It's not just what you do, but it's who you are as a person before God. But the pastor also does work. He also works as a shepherd. And Paul's going to give us four things, four imperative verbs or commands that the elders in Ephesus should do. Look with me at verse 28. Pay careful attention. You ever heard someone tell you that in class? Hey, pay attention. Listen up. You need to, if you ever had someone ask you, what did I just say right now? Repeat what I said. And you think it back in your head. Okay, what did they say? How do I say, how do I say this in a way that makes it look like I was paying attention? He says, pay careful attention. This means to be alert, to be concerned about something. Shepherds must pay careful attention to the flock that they've been entrusted to this is their duty but 
That's not the first thing that Paul says. That's true. Shepherds should pay attention to the flock. That's not what he says right at the beginning. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves. Some of your revivals might say, take heed to yourselves. What does that mean? Be careful with your own life. Look at the things in your own life before you start looking at the lives of others. Now, why does Paul say this? Why should they pay attention to themselves before they pay attention to others? I think Paul recognizes how easy it is to be so concerned with someone else and their spiritual life and their testimony that you never think of your own. We all know people that can help others clean. Maybe they're really good at helping someone else clean and making their house look nice. But if you go to their bedroom, it's a disaster and things are everywhere. And why is that? Because they're so focused on helping someone else and they never take time to be concerned with themselves. Paul says here, pay careful attention to yourselves before he says, pay attention to the flock. We all know that this is true. At first glance, this may seem obvious, but it's common for pastors and elders to neglect their own spiritual care. Let me ask you some questions. How many of you would go to a dentist who had 20 cavities and let him work on your teeth? I don't think very many of us would. Kenny says he would. How many of you would go to a dietitian who is severely overweight? Who would go to an optometrist or an eye doctor who can't see anything? Or an accountant who kept losing his own money? The answer is, none of us would. Well, it's the same way for these elders. Paul says, pay attention to your own life. Be careful. Examine your own godliness. And then he says, and to all the flock. So a careful attention to yourself and then to the church of God. You're alert, you're cautious, you're watching, you're trying to pay careful attention. One of the pastors that I love to read, he uses this phrase in his book on pastoring. He says, pastors or shepherds should smell like sheep. I don't think that means that when you come to church, you smell me and I smell like a sheep necessarily. But when you smell like a sheep as a shepherd, as a literal shepherd, it means you're around them. You're with them. You're doing that kind of work. Employees often come home smelling like their trade. When I worked in the meat department, I would come home and my roommate told me that I smelled like raw meat. Now, that wasn't a good thing. And I would try to clean that up before I went to class. A baker would smell like fresh fresh baked bread. A barista would smell like coffee. A miner would smell like dirt and coal. Your aroma captures who you've been around. So shepherds should smell like sheep. The church of God is under the spiritual care of the pastor and the elders. Therefore, the pastor pays careful attention to himself and to others in his care. He should be involved in their lives, helping them grow in Christ, getting to know them, trying to help them. Now, what is, why is this the role of the shepherd? Look at the rest of this verse. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the whole flock of God in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. 
This word episkopos, if you've heard of the Episcopalian church, that's where they get this phrase, even though that church has gone just way off the trail. Episcopos means bishop. That's where we get the word in the Bible for bishop. And what I think this text shows us, and I've said this before, Acts 20 shows us how the pastor is a pastor, elder, bishop. Three names in one office. At the beginning, they're called the Ephesian elders or presbyteros. Then they're told to shepherd the flock of God, which is the word for pastor. That's where we get the idea of pastoring. And then here we see overseers or bishops. It captures the three roles of a pastor, teaching the word, overseeing the flock, being an elder, being example to the flock as elders, but in one office or one man. So he says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Why are they to do this? Why do pastors care for God's church? Because it is a task that is given to them by God. God is the one who gives them their assignment. Pastors are given this role by God. And it says here, which he obtained with his own blood. Such an interesting phrase that's tacked on to the end of this verse. And it's a pretty widely discussed phrase as well. Some would take this to mean that Christ died for the church and only the church. And he didn't die for anyone else when he died on the cross. And I don't think that's true. You can disagree with me on that. I don't think that's true necessarily. What does this verse show us? It showed us that, yes, Christ died for the church. Did he die for the world? Yes. Did he die for the church? Yes. Did he die for them in different ways? I think possibly. I think there is a sense you could say Christ died for the whole world in his salvation, but the church he paid for with his own blood, as it says here in Acts 20, 28. How does this work? What are the different details of this? I would say that God knows. He's the one who orchestrated this. But this is what we see here. And I don't want us to miss the fact by saying, well, God Christ died for everyone. I don't want us to miss what Paul is saying here, that the church was ransomed by God. That because Christ died and those people who are part of the church have their sins paid for by Christ, we can agree on that, right? Those who are part of the church are people who are saved, people who have their sins washed away by the blood of Christ, that Christ has obtained them, yes, It's showing the value that he places on the church. We sang this morning the song, The Church is One Foundation. At the end of verse 1, it says, From heaven he came down and sought her to be his his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. That song shows us the emphasis that Christ places on his bride, the church. And you see this throughout scripture that Christ cares for the church and so because Christ cares for the church he has selected these elders to pay attention to them to watch them to be alert I can remember the first time that I dropped my dog off Mac to boarding he was like three or four months old now some pet owners when they take their dog to be boarded the first time they're very emotional And they get very upset. And I was a little emotional when I dropped Mac off. But if any of you remember Mac when I first got him in the stories I would tell, he was a bad dog. He was just a really rough 
dog when I got him. I mean, he would nip at my ankles. He would pee on the floor. He, I would just tell him to do something. He would do the opposite of what I was saying. So when I dropped him off, I was sad. There was also a huge sense of relief that I didn't have to pay attention to him for a week. And when you do that, they have this waiver that you fill out saying that they are going to watch your dog and that they can do certain things. So a lot of times when you go, if they're not eating, they can give them this medicine that helps them relax. That way they'll eat. You have to pay more money for it if that happens. But I had to sign this waiver and trusting them to take care of my dog until I returned. Just because pastors are the shepherds of the church doesn't mean it's their church, but they have been entrusted to these pastors by God who is still head of the church, who is still over the church, but they have been entrusted to these shepherds to watch out for. And that's the idea that Paul is trying to get across here. Now, why do elders need to be watchful? Why do they need to pay attention? Look at verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Pastors should pay attention because these wolves would be coming. Now, the fierce wolves here, fierce means to devour, to rip up, to be cruel towards something. They're a representation of false teachers. False teaching was going to be coming towards the church. And I've said this, I know, in Thursday Bible study. Near the end of the first century, you see a rise in false teaching, false doctrine. Look at how this false teaching is described in verse 30. And I think you get the idea of what Paul's trying to do. He says, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, trying to draw away disciples after them. What is false teaching characterized? It's in two ways. First of all, twisted things, perverted things. What does it mean to twist something? It means to take something that's straight and bend it or pervert it in a certain way. Oftentimes, false teachers will take God's truth, will take God's word, and they will make it sound like God's word, but it will be twisted in some way to suit their own desires. Be careful. Have you ever noticed that so many cults have some kind of little aspect of truth in them, and then the rest of it is just garbage? It's just things that they're trying to get you to buy into. Why is that? They're trying to attract people with something that looks like the truth, but it is perverted. <coughs> he says, He says, these men will rise speaking twisted things, trying to draw people away. This word he uses for drawing away, it's a slow departure. It doesn't just happen all at once. It happens over time. People fall into these traps. They say, hey, this isn't so bad. This looks like what I've grown up believing. And then over time, they're drawn away from the truth. Now, here's the worst part of all. Look at the beginning of the verse. It says, these men will arise from where? From your own selves. Now, is this the Ephesian elders? I don't know if it's the Ephesian elders as much as men in Ephesus who are part of the church that are going to start doing this. But he says, pay attention. These people are going to come out of nowhere. You're not going to see them coming. So you should watch out. 
Take heed to yourself. Make sure that your own spiritual life is in order and watch out for others. It is the work of the shepherd to watch out for the church because of false teaching that sets that seeks out to destroy the church itself. Secondly, look with me at this next command. Similar to the first one, it says, be alert. Be alert. Look at verse 31. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul's second command, be alert, sounds like the first, but the word that he uses means a constant readiness. A constant readiness. You're ready all the time. So the first one emphasizes the watching aspect. You're looking around, you're watching. The second verbs is a constant readiness. You're always ready for something to happen. Shepherds must always be ready to combat false teaching and to save the sheep. But this doesn't just deal with false teaching or calling out shepherd or false wolves, fierce wolves. And sometimes we think this is what it's talking about. Be alert because false teachers are coming. Yes, that's true. That's what Paul just said. But he's referring to something else. Look at the rest of verse 31. Remembering that for three years, I did not see Snyder Day to admonish everyone with tears. What are they to be doing when they're alert? They're always ready. They're always ready for something. Well, how did Paul do this? He said, hey, for three years, night and day, I kept on admonishing you. That's an interesting word that he uses, admonish. It's actually where we get the Greek word nutheo, nuthetic counseling. If you've been part of the biblical counseling movement at all, you might have heard this phrase, nuthetic counseling. It means to bring to mind. It means to counsel someone, to help someone avoid an action. To cease an action that may be harmful, it means to warn. So Paul says, you need to be alert like I was because for three years I was counseling you. And I was bringing things up in your life that I thought would be harmful to yourself. And I was telling you how you should live. Shepherds, shepherd the, shepherds watch the church by counseling by helping people understand how they need to live their life. I love the little phrase that he uses. He says, admonishing everyone with tears. Now he's used this word tears earlier. This shows the emotion in Paul's counseling or in his admonishment. What does that say? Sometimes as pastors work with people, it involves tears. I've met pastors much older than me, much more experienced than I have, who have had physical tears often because they've poured their life into a person and into a family. And then over time, they've seen that family walk away. In fact, many pastors have told me the people you invest the most time into will often be the ones that will cause you the most pain. And so this happened to Paul. He said, for three years, I ministered into your life. I counseled you. You can remember this. And it caused me much pain. People make mistakes. We have to recognize that. We have to be aware of that. It's joyful when they're transformed into the image of Christ. And it's sorrowful when they do not heed God's word. 
Let's look thirdly, as Paul gives them an encouragement, not only to watch out or to be alert, but to trust God's word. Verse 32, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I love this verse. This is such a great truth that Paul starts to use to wrap up his message. What does it mean to commend someone? We think of commendation as, oh, you're telling someone they did a good job. Here it means to entrust, to care. Like I said earlier, I gave Mac to the the vet who was watching him for that time when I was gone. I dropped him off. I was commending Mac to them, and they would watch after him. Pastors would work. They would do this ministry. Paul wouldn't be there to watch them. He was going to Jerusalem, right? So who would watch after these pastors? Who would take care of them? Who would they go to when they felt weak? Who would encourage them? Who would help them to keep going? He says, I commend you to God. It is the Lord who would watch these pastors. And not only God, or not God by himself, but God and the word of his grace. Where do pastors go? Where do elders go when they feel discouraged? When ministry is too difficult for them? Sometimes they go to conferences. Sometimes they call friends. Sometimes they get on pastors' Facebook groups and they talk about their church members, which is kind of funny to watch some pastors do. I never do that, but it's funny to watch other pastors do that. Paul says, I commend you to God and the word of his grace. Pastors who are teaching the word, who are feeding people the word, need to rely on the word itself to build them up. It's the same word that I preach every week that I need in my own life to build me up and to keep me going. Isn't that a beautiful truth? That Paul commends these pastors to God's word. He says the word of his grace, giving you something you don't deserve, enriching your life, helping you to keep going. He says it's able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. This is the word that saves us, that gives us a spiritual inheritance. And it's that word of God that builds us up and that keeps us going. So we trust God's word. So many times I've heard people say, I don't know what God wants us to do. Well, we can look in his word. And when we look in God's word, we see what God wants us to do And that word will build us up. We know that the same God who wrote his word is going to be the same God that will be faithful to complete it and to use it in our lives to make us more like his son. And this is what he leaves these Ephesian elders with. He says, I'm going to leave you to God and his word because it's going to do a way better job than I can of watching after you. Lastly, we see an encouragement from Paul to watch the weak. Watch out or help the weak. He says, I coveted no one's gold or silver apparel. I didn't, I wasn't selfish. I wasn't trying to earn things for myself. You yourselves know how these hands ministered to my necessities to those who are with me. 
Whose hands is he talking about? I think as he's speaking, he would hold up his own hands, and those would be the hands that ministered to himself. Paul worked for himself, covered his own expenses. He says, In all things I have been shown by you that working, I have shown you that working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul says, I wasn't selfish. I didn't look for my own needs. But again, he looks for the needs of others. And then he quotes Jesus. And what's interesting about this quotation from Jesus is it's not in any of the four Gospels. You can look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, at least from my study and from what other scholars have said, it's not in any of the Gospels. So where did this come from? Well, it's probably passed down from the apostles to Paul who uses it here. So I have no doubt that Jesus said this. But if you say, hey, I wonder where that is in the Gospels, you're not going to find it there. But Christ says it is more blessed to give than to receive, showing again how we should help the weak and not be selfish. And it's interesting that Paul ends his message to the Ephesian elders this way, but yet he shows us the heart of Christ, that among ministry and serving others and trying to teach God's word, we never forget about the weak and those who need God's help. So Paul ends his sermon. In verse 36, he says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Verse 37, And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he has spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So with that, he prays with them, he embraces them, and they're sad. Why are they sad? Because they know Paul's going to Jerusalem, and they don't think Paul's going to see them again. Now, I don't even think Luke realized that Paul would go back at a later point to Ephesus. But it shows again Paul's commitment to God and his work. As we think about shepherding, pastors and elders embracing biblical shepherding there's so much of this we can apply to our own lives even if you're not a pastor there's so much you can think about taking heed to yourself watching out for others encouraging others counseling others even your own testimony as we talked about in the first point but i want us to end with this shepherding is modeled after the good shepherd who is jesus christ jesus christ is called the good shepherd throughout scripture and I want us to see three final thoughts from the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, that can encourage us. How does Jesus shepherd his sheep? And in what ways does that encourage us? First of all, the good shepherd knows his sheep. We see that in John 10, 13. The good shepherd knows his sheep. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Christ knows his sheep in the same way pastors and elders know their congregation their congregation should be known by them secondly we see that the good shepherd pursues his lost sheep he's unlike the bad shepherd who says hey if they want to go that's their decision i don't want to interfere they got to do what's best for them no jesus pursues his lost sheep luke 15 4 says what man of you if he has a hundred sheep and if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Christ pursues 
is lost sheep. Now, there are people that will just rebel and go their own way to the point where you have to say they're just not going to repent, possibly. But Christ takes great lengths to go after the one who is lost. And then finally, John 10, 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Paul often in scripture talks about how he was suffering, how he was facing affliction for the churches he was ministering to. We see that ultimately in the example of Christ who laid down his life for the sheep. So ask yourself questions this morning. How are you embracing biblical shepherding? How are you encouraging not only me, the other elders here, how are you shepherding one another? How are you helping others pay attention to themselves? And when we do this, we depend on Jesus, who is the chief shepherd. We can be commended, like Paul says, to God and his grace. You might say, this is too much. I don't know if I can do this. Well, the answer to that question is simple. You can't. You can't do this on your own. So we depend on God and his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul and his ministry in the Ephesians and in their church. We thank you for men who have ministered in our church's life. I thank you for the different pastors who have been faithful to shepherd me throughout my life. We ask that as we now focus on the Lord's table, that you would help us to look in our own hearts, examine areas of our life that need repentance. Help us to take heed to ourselves, Lord. So we commit this time to you. We ask that you would be faithful to help us and to encourage us. In Christ's name, amen.